He watched the killing of Stephen, the first martyr. He went on to do everything he could to stamp out the newly formed Christian church. We would not expect him to become a convert and missionary and an apostle, but that's exactly how God used Paul. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Repetitions in Scripture are important, so when Luke tells of Paul's conversion three times in Acts, we need to pay attention. Paul's conversion is a powerful story of how Jesus reached down and touched the heart of his persecutor and made him a new creature. Let's listen as Dr. Boyce teaches from Acts on the conversion of Saul. Acts isn't a very long book, although by the other books of the New Testament, it's relatively long, 28 chapters. Yet it's significant, isn't it, that a book of such limited length as Acts, covering so much material as it does, showing the expansion of Christianity from small beginnings in Jerusalem shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a religion that filled the whole empire, that a book that is relatively short, that seeks to present such an expansive picture, nevertheless tells this story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul not once but three times. You find it here in the ninth chapter. It's Luke's own account, as I said, you find virtually the same thing again twice more, once in chapter 22 and a third time in chapter 26. Now, it's true that in each of those incidents it's handled somewhat differently. It's obviously the same story, but it's being presented to different audiences and therefore different things are emphasized. Here, I suppose, the emphasis is upon the ministry of Ananias to the Apostle Paul, how God came to him, called him, and sent him to this apostle to establish a bridge that from the very beginning said something about the unity and fellowship within the church of Jesus Christ. In the 22nd chapter of Acts, Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience in Jerusalem. There's just been a near riot, and the soldiers have intervened to protect him and put him in protective custody. He's asked for permission to address the crowd, and he does, and he tells the story of his conversion, and there the emphasis seems to be upon the intervention of God in his life, the revelation that he received from heaven, obviously with great point, because the Jews believed in such things, and uh, claim to having heard a voice of God from heaven was no mean thing. That had to be taken seriously, and they gave him very serious attention until he came to what proved to be the end of the address and mentioned that this God who spoke from heaven told him that he was going to send him to the Gentiles, and that the word Gentiles, they were so fanatical that they began to break into noise again, and that was the end of the speech. But that was the emphasis. And then in the 26th chapter, we have Paul again telling the story of his conversion. This time he is before kings. It tells us in this story that he is going to appear before kings and bear witness before them, and that's what he does before Festus and Agrippa, two Gentile kings. And here, when he tells his story, the emphasis, oh, it's the same story, seems to be upon the commission to go to the Gentiles, which, of course, makes sense. That's what he wants to show. God gave him a revelation and a message and told him 
to go to the Gentiles, just like Festus and Agrippa. And we know that he got a good hearing on that occasion. Well, as I say, there are three different emphases and these three different stories, and all of that makes perfect sense and we understand it, but still it is very striking, isn't it? That in a book of this length, Luke would tell the story, not summarizing it, but telling it in full, tell the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion three times. Obviously, it means that Luke considered that very, very important. He saw it as a watershed event, a turning point in history, as significant, if you can understand it, in its own way, as the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Very interesting historical demonstration of that, a story which I have told before, generally at Easter time, because it concerns the resurrection. It concerns these two men who lived in the 19th century, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. They were good friends. They moved in literary circles, and they were both unbelievers, strong in their unbelief. They were lawyers, and they had, as they thought, very good reasons for not accepting Christianity. They said to each other one day in conversation, you know, this matter of Christianity really stands upon a very unstable foundation. There really are only two things that stand behind it, the alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ and the alleged conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Why, if we could just disprove those, which should be a rather easy thing to do, Christianity would just collapse like a house of cards. So they said to each other in this conversation, let's do it. Why don't you write on one and I'll write on the other? And Gilbert West said, well, all right, I'll write on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord Littleton said, I'll write on the conversion of the Apostle Paul. You show why Jesus could not possibly have been raised from the dead, and I'll show that the Apostle Paul could not have been converted, as the story says he was, by a voice from heaven and a revelation on the road to Damascus. And so they went off to write their books. And sometime after that, they came back together and one of them said to the other, you know, I have a confession to make as I have been looking into the evidence for this. Remember, they were lawyers and they had very good minds. He said, I've begun to think that maybe there's something to it. And the other one said, well, you know, the same thing has happened to me, but let's investigate it and see where we come out. So they did. And when they met finally, they had kept in touch, being friends over the period of their work. When they met finally, each had to confess to the other that in the end they had come out giving exactly the opposite conclusion than they thought they were going to have when they went in. Gilbert West wrote a great book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's its title. And Lord Littleton wrote a great book on the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And those books are available in our library. My own version, an old one, has both of them bound together. And in these two Great books bound together. There is a flyleaf, and on the flyleaf are printed the words, Blame not until thou hast examined the truth. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that both of them concern the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I said, in its own way, by treating the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of the Apostle Paul, rightly, I think, as two great pillars of Christianity, they were saying that both are important and that if the Apostle Paul was not really converted, as the ninth chapter of Acts says he was, and as he himself said he was in these two great testimonies, both before the Jews and the Gentiles, then Christianity 
loses one of its most able theologians and certainly a very great defender of the faith and is weakened as a result. Well, this man Saul is interesting. He's already been introduced to us at the very beginning of the eighth chapter, really the end of the story of the stoning of Stephen that we have in chapter 7. Luke is a great historian, and he writes well, and he slips in at that point. Saul was there giving approval to his death. Saul has not been mentioned to this point, but everybody who read this would know exactly who Saul was. And now here in chapter 9, he begins to tell his story. Saul had a remarkable training. He had the best possible education a person in that time could have. And the next question is, was it a secular education or a Christian education? The answer was, it was a secular education. Overtly secular in his hometown of Tarshish. It had a Greek education, and he gives some indication of that. He didn't put a great deal of store by that, but he gives some indication of that because in his writings, from time to time, he'll quote one of the Greek poets. So he must have learned that or studied that at one time in his youth. But he also had what in that day would have been called a religious education, but from our point of view, was a secular religious education. He went to Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel. It would be like going to Harvard University and registering in the religious department there. It would have been a study of religion, and it would have been very thorough. Indeed, it was. And he knew the law, and he knew all the traditions of Israel, but it wasn't a spiritual thing. And Paul gives every evidence of that in his life, that his heart really was untouched by the Spirit of God. But that was Paul. Now, we ask a question at this point. What would Paul, before he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, have thought of Christianity? He knew about it, of course, because he was persecuting the church. He was out to destroy Christians, and he had been in Jerusalem for some time. He had studied with Gamaliel. That's where Gamaliel had his school. And certainly, although he wasn't in Christian circles, Jerusalem wasn't all that big, and he certainly knew what was going on. He'd heard the stories and was acquainted with Christianity. Later, he begins to summarize all the basic doctrines of Christianity. He does it in 1 Corinthians, that great chapter on the resurrection. And he says there that he received from others all these basic truths, how that Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures and buried and rose the third day according to the Scriptures and that he was seen. And he begins to list all the witnesses, and at the very end he says, and last of all, by me as one born out of due time. These things would have been known to Paul, and so he asked now with his knowledge of Christianity, this new religion, this sect as they called it, of the Nazarenes beginning to thrive in the city, the central city of Judaism, what would Paul have thought of the new faith? Well, he would have thought it was wrong, of course. That's clear enough. He was a monotheistic Jew. Here were people saying that Jesus was God. He would have regarded that as polytheism. If Jesus is God, that's a denial of the God of Israel. He didn't understand what uh, Christians do understand, but he would have thought it was wrong for that reason. And so that's clear enough. It would have been something which was incompatible with his religious traditions, and he understood that. And I think there would have been more to it than that. Not only would Paul have considered Christianity wrong, he would have considered it deceptive. Because, you see, it made great claims. It claimed that Jesus 
was the Son of God and that he had proved that by his resurrection from the dead. And the Christianity was wrong. Jesus had not risen from the dead and therefore was not God. Then those who were going about to say that he had been raised from the dead and he was God were obviously and consciously trying to deceive the rest of the Jewish community. Moreover, there's this matter of the empty tomb. That was in Jerusalem. Frank Morrison, who writes that classic little book, Who Moved the Stone, calls a great deal of attention to this, saying that here were the early Christians, the apostles especially, preaching the resurrection, and there in the very city in which they were preaching it, there was the tomb in which Jesus had been buried, but which was discovered by the priests as well as by the early Christians to have been empty. If the enemies of the gospel had been able to produce the body of Jesus Christ in those early days, they would certainly have done it because that would have destroyed Christianity at its roots. That they couldn't do it meant that it was a great embarrassment to them. But they would have tried to explain it, you see. The traditional explanation that's reflected at the end of Matthew's gospel is that the disciples came and stole away the body. If Jesus was not really raised, then something like that must have happened. That's the only explanation there could be. The disciples must have come and stolen the body, and then they must have gone about saying that Jesus was raised from the dead in order to establish a religion when, knowing perfectly well, he had not been raised from the dead and they had stolen the body. And that's what Saul must have thought, you see. It's not just a question of Christianity being wrong. It was a damnable deceit. It was leading people away from the truth, the truth which was the way of salvation. And that explains Saul's attitude. Some people say about Saul, well, he was just one of those people that likes to go around killing people. I guess there are people like that. But I don't think that explains Saul. That isn't the way he explains it himself. He's ready to confess his sin. When he tells the story, he always says how wrong and how sinful he was, but he always explains it in terms of his zeal for the tradition of his fathers. It wasn't just that he didn't like these people. He thought they were really doing something bad. And if he needed some sort of justification for it, he could find it in the Old Testament of the story of Phineas, who killed the man and the woman in the tent with a spear in order to stop the plague. And God honored Phineas. Phineas was a great man. He's praised. And this is what Saul was trying to do. And so having been very active in the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem and hearing that the sect of the Nazarenes, which in the story now is called the Way, had begun to spread and was taking roots in Damascus, he got letters from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to the synagogues in Damascus to go there. And if he found any who were followers of the way, to seek them out and to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And it was on that mission that God stopped him. There's some interesting things that are connected with this. For one thing, when one of the stories is given, the Lord is quoted as having said to Saul, 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 it's hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. That means that he was bothered in his conscience. And when we 
recognize that, we begin to say, now, what was his state of mind, and why was he bothered in his conscience? The explanation of that comes from the context, the story, the way Luke is telling it. We are told the first time that we find reference to Saul that he was there when Stephen was martyred. And just think of that now in the context of what we know about Saul and what he must have been thinking about the church. Remember now he thought that these Christians were not merely wrong, but they were deceivers. And now you see, for the first time in the trial of Stephen and in his martyrdom, he had come face to face, up close, with one of these Christians. And what an impression it must have made on a man like Saul. Saul was educated, so was Stephen. Stephen perhaps didn't have the same advantage of a secular education, at least not a Greek secular education, as Saul did. But when Stephen stood up to give his testimony before the Sanhedrin, he certainly demonstrated a knowledge of the scriptures that was equal to that of the Apostle Paul. Effortlessly, it would seem, Stephen rehearsed the great peaks of the history of the people of Israel. And he was able to do that with ease and make his points, namely that God was no respecter of persons, that he had revealed himself to Gentiles as well as to Jews, and that down through their history, those who were favored by a special revelation had resisted the truth and had martyred the prophets and now in the end had killed Jesus. Certainly, a man of Saul's intellect and training would have been impressed by that. I think, too, he must have been impressed with Stephen's dying words. You see, as Stephen was dying, he looked up to heaven and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, he could have been lying, of course, but really, in those circumstances, in the moment of his death, soon to appear before the judge of all, you mean to Tell me that in circumstances like that, a, a man would carry out that deception to the very end, saying to those who were the appointed earthly judges of the people that he saw Jesus when he really didn't see him. You see, if this was a deception, it was certainly a deception of a remarkable order. And Saul, being the man he was and having the mind he did have, must have been impressed with that. And then, too, there was the way in which Stephen died. As Stephen died, he repeated the words of his master. He said, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I wonder if Saul didn't ask himself at that point whether he, Saul, could die like that. Could he die with that kind of faith? Could he die that peace of mind and heart and that nature that would give forgiveness, ask for forgiveness, even the moment when he's being killed. Well, prejudices die hard. He may have been kicking against the goads, but he was kicking against them. And so it's in that frame of mind that he sent out, as I said, to Damascus. And it was on the road that Jesus met him. I think there must be an irony in the story at this point, an irony perhaps that Luke is calling to our attention. You see, Saul was very concerned that this religion was spreading. It was bad enough that it was there in Jerusalem, and he was doing everything he could to stamp it out there. He must have been fairly effective because it says 
that the Christians scattered. They went to all the areas round about. So he had probably broken up the assemblies. As far as we know, the disciples were still there, the apostles, but the others were scattered, many of them at least. And he must have said, well, we're doing all right here. But he heard rumors, you see, that this was taking root in Damascus. Damascus now, remember, was a Gentile city in Syria. We've been reading how the gospel spread to Samaria. That was half Gentile and half Jewish. But you see, now it's gone even beyond that. It's gone the whole way to Damascus. That was 120 miles to the north. Saul must have been worried at that point. But as I say, I think there's an irony here because the story we've just been told in the chapter immediately before this concerns Philip, an Ethiopian, and now get the geography in mind. Saul is there very concerned that the gospel's spreading north. It's gone to Samaria and it's gone beyond that to Damascus. And so he's on his way up there to Damascus to arrest those Christians and bring them back so he can try them and stamp this thing out. And while he's making his way north, God picks up Philip from Samaria and leapfrogs over him, as it were, and sends him down on the road by Gaza going to Ethiopia. And by the grace of God, he's instrumental in converting the Ethiopian. You see, Saul is trying to stamp it out in one direction and God is spreading it in the other. And it wasn't long before it spread throughout the whole world. Isn't it funny that the opponents of Christ have tried to stamp out Christianity all down through history? All the Roman emperors tried to do it. It was a crime even to possess the scriptures. And people are trying to do it today. Communist countries try to do it. All different ways of trying to stamp it out. We're trying to stamp it out in this country too. It goes by the idea of the separation of church and state. It's to say you can't be visible with your faith. We have our own way of doing it, but what folly that is. We think we're stamping it out in this way, but the Lord of history, God himself, just spreads it through his people. And that's what was happening. Well, on the way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ stopped Paul in his tracks. It was suddenly a bright light from heaven. He says, who art thou, Lord? Perhaps he saw a vision of the Lord. He certainly heard the voice. And the conversation is a classic, classic conversation. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Same verse, verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. What a thunderbolt in the spiritual and intellectual experience of Saul. Here he was so sure, oh yes, resisting those goadings of the facts, but nevertheless, as he thought of himself, he was so sure that these Christians were wrong and that they were out to deceive people. And then suddenly out in a remote place, as remote as the area where the Ethiopian was traveling, on his way to Damascus, without a Christian anywhere around, suddenly there's a light from heaven and God speaks and God is Jesus. What a turnabout, what a, what a turmoil for Saul. Because unless he was utterly deceived, and unless he was hallucinating, it proved, you see, that Jesus was alive because Jesus was speaking to him. It proved that Jesus was God because this was a theophany. This wasn't a man he met walking along the way. This was a voice from heaven. This was God 
And moreover, this Jesus, who was alive and who was God, was identifying himself with the very people that Saul was persecuting. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren. You've done it unto me. If you've done them good, you do it to me. If you do them evil, you do it to me. That's the way Jesus was speaking. And Saul was just overwhelmed. Verse 7, you see, what an understatement. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, and Saul himself certainly was. He was blind. As a result of the revelation, they led him into the city, and when he was there in the city, he spent three days. He was praying, he was seeking the will of God, and while he was doing that, God came to this man Ananias, who figures very strongly in the story, and says to Ananias, now there's a man here in the city, Saul, he's seen a vision. He's had a vision since of a man named Ananias coming to him to explain these things. And Ananias didn't need much more explanation than that. He knew very well who this was. Oh, he said, I've heard about him. Lots of reports are circulating about him and not just in Jerusalem. I know why he's here. He's come to arrest people like me and carry me off to Jerusalem and do to me what he did to Stephen, the deacon. But the Lord said to him, no, no, that isn't what's happening. I'm doing something here. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then, you know, I like verse 17. Ananias went to the house and entered it. When God spoke to Ananias, Ananias, though he knew about Saul and knew what he was up to, was strong enough in the Lord to believe God and do what he said and trust God for the consequences. He might have said, I guess in these circumstances, we might have said at that point, oh, no, Lord, you're mistaken. Many people you may have been able to convert, but Saul is certainly not on that list. Ever there was an unconvertible enemy, it's this man Saul. But if God said he was converted, Ananias was willing to believe that, and he went. I wonder if you have faith as strong as this great man from Damascus. You know, many of us pray for people. Sometimes it's a son or a daughter, sometimes a parent, sometimes a friend, sometimes a husband, sometimes a wife. We pray, and we ask God to do something and change their lives, to work in their lives so they're born again. But we don't really believe it. You know, we don't think God can. We say, oh, I know you do it with other people, but I really wonder if you can do it with that individual. God can, you see. God saved Saul, and he turned this great persecutor into this great missionary. A man who was doing the most in these days to harm the church, he turned into the man who did the most to build it up. God can do that today. You see, if you, you have a son or a daughter that you're worried about and is off somewhere, not serving the Lord, you keep praying for them because God can yet do something remarkable in their lives. And there are promises that concern our children that we can claim. At any rate, here's what God did for this man. Now, how do you explain this conversion? 
This is what Lord Littleton wrestled with in his book. He said there are only certain ways you really can talk about it. He said if this didn't really happen the way it's described here in Acts, then this man Saul must have been an imposter or an enthusiast, that is one who got carried away with himself, virtually out of his mind, or he himself was a deceiver or deceived by others. And then in his legal way, with relentless logic, Littleton began to examine these things. He said, you have to ask, was Saul an imposter? This is Luke telling the story, but Luke got it from Saul. They were friends. Maybe this is the way Paul told it to Luke, and this is the way Luke wrote it down, but, you know, it was just a big put-on. Paul was just pretending to something that never really happened. Well, he said, if that's the case, you have to ask for the motivation. If he was going to the lengths that he did to tell this great story that was no true story, why in heaven's name would he possibly do it? And he began to say, well, you only advance certain reasons. Some people might do something like that to think that they would get ahead. It's a way of impressing people and making a mark for yourself. People do that in the church sometimes today. They pretend to a faith they don't have because they think, well, it's a good thing to be a member of a church and be highly thought of. But, said Littleton, that was hardly the case in Paul's day. Paul had a future all right, but his future was certainly not with the persecuted Christians. He was doing very well in Judaism. He himself talks about it. He said, I have excelled among the most excellent elect company of my people. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, zealous, moving ahead. Why, if anybody was going to make a name for himself and be successful in Judaism, it was, it was Paul. So Littleton says, you can't explain it by saying that he was doing it to get ahead. Matter of fact, the opposite happened. Humanly speaking, he got anything but ahead. He suffered many, many things by throwing in his lot with the Christians. He said, sometimes, you know, people will do that, claim a revelation from God in order to excuse some behavior, some sin that they want to commit. They'll say, well, God told me to do it. I just had this vision, and God said, do it, and it's all right. And that's supposed to be an unimpeachable argument. Well, he said, did did Saul do that? Is that the way he lived? Did he use the story of this revelation to indulge himself? The answer is anything but this revelation, this call from God imposed upon him what, physically speaking, was the greatest of hardships as he became an ambassador for Christ throughout the world, suffering many, many things for the sake of the name. So that doesn't explain it. How about uh, being an enthusiast in the 19th century? That meant one who was virtually out of his mind. Does that explain Paul, did he just get carried away with the idea the way some people do and was so excited about it he just couldn't stop talking about it? Oh, he was zealous all right, but that's not the same thing. Littleton said, oh no, here was a man. You have to understand this. This was not a Sadducee who didn't believe in the resurrection. This was a Pharisee who did believe in the resurrection and who had heard the stories of Jesus' resurrection but did not regard that as a valid story. That's not an enthusiast. It's a man who says, I have lived in this world a long time, and there may be a resurrection. The Bible says so. It's coming at the end of time, but people do not rise. 
And so it must be a deception. That's exactly the opposite of what that explanation would suggest. Perhaps he was deceived. That's the third possibility. Well, hardly. Who would have deceived him? It would have had to have been the Christians. But could they even have thought of that? I mean, let's start at the base. Could they even have thought of the possibility of concocting something that would deceive their great enemy? Hardly. What they were trying to do was stay as far away from him as they could. They weren't capable of that. Or even if they were, how could they possibly have carried it off? A bright light from heaven, a voice that Saul unquestionably recognized as the voice of God? How could they possibly have done that? And then to get Ananias to come and a further, it just is impossible. And so, as Littleton said when he came to the end of his examination, if this story of the conversion of Saul is not the result of Saul being an imposter, or the result of Saul being deceived, or as a result of Saul being an enthusiast, it must be because there was a genuine revelation followed by a genuine conversion on Paul's part. And that's the way people are converted by that which is genuine. There are non-genuine conversions, people who pretend to something that hasn't really happened, people who profess the faith but later drift away. But all true conversion is a result of the work of this same Jesus Christ who said, I know my sheep, I call them by name, and I lead them out, and they become mine, and they're mine forever. Christianity doesn't rest on a foundation of sand. It rests on the work of God, and that's what happened in the case of Saul. Has that happened in your life? Has Jesus Christ made himself known to you, producing his life in you, calling you by name, so that you become his and say, as the Apostle Paul and the other ambassadors of the cross undoubtedly said, I would rather die than deny what Jesus did for me. That's the case. Then you belong to that great company. And if not, you need to seek Jesus out while he may be found. Let us pray. Our Father, do bless these words, this story, these truths to our hearts. We are such sinful, imperfect, wayward, resisting people. But you are the God able to reclaim the wandering sheep and break down the resistance of the soul and so win and draw that those who are drawn to you become utterly different men and women. We pray that you would do that in our midst and do it in a great way beginning now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals.
The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.